Hey guys, we've got a uh, a new episode here, um, and this is my new co-host, Jaden, um, and we've got Brett Calhoun here too. So if you want to introduce yourself real quick, Brett. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. I Brett Calhoun, based in Columbia, Missouri, managing director and uh, GP at Scale VC, which is a early stage ID to early traction investor in founders across North America. Yeah, and then I was just going to elaborate a little bit more on uh, his background and everything so everyone knows exactly where he's coming from and stuff like that. So, Brett, he's an alumni from Arkansas uh, Tech University. Is that correct? That is correct. I, I did a undergrad at Arkansas Tech University, played football there for uh, three or four years, and then um, I did B-School uh, MBA at University of Missouri um, later on. All right. What position did you play? I played H-back and linebacker. Nice, nice. I was a wide receiver and running back. Um, so, yeah. And then uh, your history, you uh, started with a lot of internships in the finance sector. I was looking at your LinkedIn a little bit. And then you got into starting your own company with uh, lending, and then now you're on Venture Fund. So if you want to talk a little about your history on the, the company you started, stuff like that, that'd be awesome. For sure. Yeah, I my career started in accounting finance, did the whole CPA route, um, started doing valuation work and that was more sell side M&A litigation. I was working with mom and pop businesses, tech startups to fortune 100 companies, um, on a wide array of various engagements. Um, and then when I was in MBA at University of Missouri is where I got exposed to the whole venture capital startup ecosystem. I actually had taken a class um, where the students ran a fund and then post that, that was the last time they did the class, but still had a little bit under a million bucks to deploy. And the guy running it asked me to come work with him. So I did that for nine months and absolutely fell in love with the opportunity to help Missouri founders get access to a lot of the resources that they normally don't have access to. Um, from there, I worked with a fintech startup called Patient. Um, I was employee seven there while I was in grad school. Um, they're about a Series C, Series C company now, raised about $60 million. Oh, wow. um, and I was working on more product pricing and strategy while I was there. Um, kind of sprinkled in there, I helped start an angel investing group, and which is relevant to leading it to scale, but I'll come back to that in a second. Um, after patient work, the legal tech fund, which is a probably the most notable funds focused on early stage legal technology investing. It's the only fund in the world right now that's solely focused on legal tech. While I was there, we started a company called cap games. So I was in the founding team of that. We were building software for complex tax incentives, starting with qualified small business stock, which is hyper relevant to anybody who has who anybody who's on the cap table of a tech company, because if you're successful and you sell that in five years, you don't have to pay any taxes on it. Uh, but it's really annoying to try to track that and maintain the qualifications. Um, around the same time, co-founded a company called Charlie Mike, which is a lending startup for veterans. And the first product was focused on financing closing costs on VA mortgages. So we'd go to lenders like Veterans United and say, hey, you know, one of the biggest reasons your borrowers fall out, fall out um, after getting approved for a loan is they realize, oh, shoot, I owe 10, 15, 20 K in closing costs. And maybe they have the liquidity for that. Maybe it's just enough and they start their new home with no money um, or they don't have the liquidity. So 
we would essentially plug into their loan officers process where um, immediately they would go to our website, check and make sure that if they got a loan for closing costs, it wouldn't hurt their um, DTI for the underwriting and then refer the borrower to us. So we had cut out all customer acquisition costs, which is one of the biggest uh, barriers to being a lender is, you know, you're essentially a marketing company because everybody wants money. Yeah. So you cut out the customer acquisition costs, you're way more profitable than most lenders. Um, Can you tell and us? And then what? when they would refer to, what's that? I was just going to say, just for our viewers that might not know, can you tell us what the process is different? Like how the, the VA process of getting a house is a little different than the typical person putting 20% down? For sure. VA, um, they might have stricter underwriting, but it's 100% financed. So going into it, um, you know, generally you're thinking, oh, I don't have to save a bunch of money until you realize I got to pay three to 5% of the, the ticket price and closing costs. Um, and you can't, so normal mortgages and, and why this is such a, an issue with VA is because with normal mortgages, oftentimes the, um, the seller or the buyer, one, the buyer can roll the closing costs into the mortgage. Um, but you can't do that with VA because that's going to push the loan, the loan to value above a hundred percent. And so then it kills the underwriting. So you, you almost have to pay for closing costs. And in the competitive market that we're still in, even though we're in a downturn, the sellers don't pay for closing costs anymore. So you have to have the money for the closing costs. Um, so that's one reason why it's super important to have liquidity right away, even if you are doing a VA and it's 100% finance. Um, and kind of going back to our process, so they refer the borrowers and then the the veterans don't actually have to get underwritten again necessarily um so they would apply for our financing with their mortgage underwriting and so we would just lend based upon credit score and we'd have mortgage partners approved like we would approve them based upon their underwriting and say hey veterans united is a notable lender they have good underwriting regardless of what um their underwriting is as long as their credit score is within our range, we're going to lend to them immediately. So we could lend within like 20 minutes to these veterans. And um, that organically grew. So we finally got a banking partner during the pandemic, which was really hard to do. Well, so you say, um, does that mean they have access? Like how long does it take to access their funds? Uh, Within 24 hours. Oh, really? That's fast. That's really fast. Yeah. So it's uncollateralized personal lending. Um, rates are pretty much on par with the market at that. I mean, it's about as risky as you can get with lending to people. Um, our hypothesis was that lending to veterans was less risky um, for a number of reasons. Um, obviously, the mindset that's ingrained in a veteran of, you know, being financially sophisticated and um, making sure that, you know, you have a good credit score, like all these things that you learn through being in the army or whatever military branch you're in. Um, so kind of going back to the status on that, we finally got a banking partner in February of 2021, which we had a few fall out because of the pandemic and started lending in July of 21. Within 12 months, we had scaled that to, we had about 900 veterans we went to and we're doing a little over a million ARR. 
Um, I'm not, I've since kind of stepped away just because scale has really consumed my life. But um, Josh Kaplan, who's the CEO of that is um, incredible, knows the space very well. He's the top loan. He was the top loan officer at Veterans United. So comes with a lot of domain experience. He's got a pretty good team over there. Um, they're in the works of rolling out a new product, switching things around just with the current market, as you know, interest rates and banking are not looking so hot. Um, but I would, I would definitely say they're, they're on some pretty cool stuff and, um, have made it, I mean, yeah, over 12 months, we helped 900 people that might not have gotten a home, get a home. So that's pretty cool to say. That's awesome. Um, yeah. I mean, that doesn't feel great, the work you're doing there, or at did. I know you're stepping back, and I think it'd be a good segue to, to the next thing. Yeah, so I was actually interested in learning more about Scale, uh, which you're the managing director at, I believe. Um, I was checking you guys out, and you have both yeah. a venture fund and a venture studio, and I just sort of wanted to hear, like, what are what are these two things you've got going on? For sure. So, yeah, so Scale, we are early stage journalist investors that um, spend an intimate level of time with the founders we invest in over a 12 week period and like to stay as long-term partners. We don't cut it off after 12 weeks or something. One of the things that makes us unique is that we have very successful operators who have dedicated their time to helping our founders build. And an idea of what that success looks like is, for example, Willie Schlax um, and his brother Javik Schlax both started a company called Equipment Share in Columbia, Missouri. That's a multi-billion dollar company now, top 25 YC company, and um, they've carved out time to, to really spend a lot with our, our companies, which I, regardless of where you're at, whether it's in Columbia, Missouri or, you know, in Silicon Valley, it's, it's unique to have people that carve out a lot of time in their calendars to help other founders. Um, now, in terms of like the bifurcation of the model, so we the venture studio side, because we have a lot of builders on our team, it just makes sense to continue starting companies. So we have internal ideas, like there's a whole list of companies that all of us want to start. And essentially what we'll do is do some initial diligence on that hypothesis and then um, start sourcing founders to come in and, and build that company. Um, and we want to bring them in at the customer discovery phase because we want them to feel like they are the founders and we want them to be the founders of the company. Uh, and then we support them in the long term and see the initial investment in that. On the venture fund side, we're doing 50 to 150K investments and then working with the companies for three months. Um, that is software or hardware, generalist, hyper focus on the people behind the business. I mean, this, these are all obvious things, but you're underwriting people at this phase, not necessarily a company. Um, those things change. It's the whole saying of, you know, we're betting on the jockey, not the horse. And um, yeah, since we started this a little under two years ago, we've invested in 29 companies. Um, just started a the spring 2023 batch with uh, six companies and then starting one company. So we've got about seven out of this new fund, which we raised uh, last month. And that that fund is, I, I can dive into that in a second, or we can hop into some other questions. Just let me know how you want to take it. Yeah, I was I was seeing you guys just closed a, another fund, which is pretty cool. Um, 
especially in this VC environment, you know, securing money is cool. So I wanted to to hear about how that went. Uh, just get some more info about it. Yeah, for sure. So we started scale in June of 2021. It was um, the Schlax and Jay Malik's idea originally. Um, Jay is still involved with scale. He also has a fund called Countdown Capital. Um, he's a very impressive investor. He's probably one of the premier pre-seed funds for hardware technology in the industrial defense and aerospace space. Um, and then obviously I've already spoken a little bit about Willie, Willie and Javik, but when we started the fund, it was, it was more friends and family. It's kind of like starting a startup. You, you get a little money from people who are really close to you and, and test out your model. It's, it's more, can we do this in Columbia, Missouri? And, um, really trying to refine our thesis and how we work with founders. Um, so started deploying that fund in September of 2021 over the next 12 months, we had deployed that and felt really good about what we had been able to accomplish within that 18 month time period and the, um, material impact we'd been able to make on the companies we had invested in, uh, as well as the quality of founders that continued to come in the door as, as we scaled this, our applications doubled between the second, third cohort that we did. Um, so we're getting a pretty good national reach within a very short period of time with almost no SEO branding, anything. Um, fast forward to now we use that as a basis to, to raise this next fund. And, and part of it is really ingrained in bringing the community in Columbia, Missouri together. And to give you a sense of like Columbia, Missouri, why this is a special place, but it's kind of like the best kept secret. Um, yes, we have a large public university here, University of Missouri, it's probably the biggest uh, landmark, but also there's been a lot of successful entrepreneurs come out of Columbia, Missouri. Spoke about equipment share, which is a top 25 YC company, um, but it's not the only top 25 YC company in Columbia. Another one is Zapier. Um, a lot of people probably know Zapier. You guys both probably use Zapier. Um, you know, they're a five or $7 billion company. The founder CEO, Wade Foster still lives here. He's one of our advisors, works with our companies. Um, another is patient. They've raised $60 million. Beyond Meat was started in Columbia, Missouri. Uh, Veterans United, which is the largest VA mortgage lender. Carfax, like there's a whole list of all these companies that have started here. And a lot of like really successful people that have come out of Columbia. So there's definitely like a sell, it's like, we wanted to bring all of these people together as well as across Missouri. We'll keep growing that over time. Um, and so one of the things was, Hey, when we went to university of Missouri, it's like, we want to support the student ventures here because there's sure there's support there, but we could really 10 X that support. Um, and so one with the fund, we're starting an on-campus accelerator at the university. Um, so we got University of Missouri Endowment involved and we got Shelter Insurance involved, which is a very large um, insurer in town. And another sell to them is like, hey, we would love to start companies and get you guys involved in that. Um, it's an older company and, you know, we could really help um, promote a culture at Shelter and in Columbia, Missouri for innovation. Uh, and then... Outside of those two, we've got a bunch of really successful operators from the Kansas City and Columbia, Missouri area. Um, raised the fund in about six months, which was 
really exciting um, in this current market is you can see that emerging fund managers are really getting beaten down recently. Um, so that's good. I mean, you know, we're still small, but we're definitely growing. Went from a million and a half uh, dollar friends and family fund to a $5 million fund to, you know, in two years from now, we'll probably, you know, triple or quadruple that size um, and continue growing and expanding our support for founders. Um, so it's, yeah. That's cool. And then um, since you are early stage, it's so much about who, who you're actually backing. And I'm wondering what sort of things do you look in the, look for in the founders that you back? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, one thing it's really hard to test for is like, what is that person's chip on the shoulder? Or what is it deeper in them beyond like financial, future financial rewards that would cause them to persevere and be resilient with this company? Even when it gets hard, like for example, um, you're starting a software company and you're just really struggling to get product market fit. You're struggling to raise capital from investors. You're kind of running on short fuses. It's like the really good founders are probably have at some point over that, you know, six to 18 month path figured out like, oh, our product could be used for this, or we could tweak a few things and pivot to this. Like you see that time and time again with the really good ones, they find a way to be successful. And we look for people that regardless of the constraints of the environment around you, you're going to do whatever it takes to be a successful founder. That's a great one. Um, certain companies or certain sectors, you need domain experience. So that's kind of inevitable. If you're in the healthcare space, you have to have somebody who has healthcare, a healthcare background. Um, we look for people who are definitely have technical, uh, either founders or team members. That's very important to us because it's really hard to build a tech company when you have no technical founders. It's definitely possible. For all the people out there that are building companies that don't have a tech founder, you can definitely be successful with it. For example, Airbnb. Um, other things is just, you know, what is your mindset with building the company? It's like, are you trying to get a quick exit? Are you trying to build a multi-billion dollar company? And you'll be surprised how many people you ask, like, what does success look like for you with this company? And they're like, oh, like if somebody offered me 50 million in three years, that'd be awesome. It's like, no, like that's not how, that's not how like a fund works. Like if you, to give you an example of portfolio construction of a fund, let's say I've got a $5 million fund. I, I get 3% of a company. Okay. Now in order for that company to reach a billion dollars, they're going to have to raise a lot more capital. So my 3% might get diluted to like 1%. Okay. Now, in order for me to 3X a fund to hit what is kind of the target, so a $5 million fund to a $50 million uh, return, that 1% is going to have to be $15 million, which means that company has to be worth $1.5 billion. And if I invest in 30 companies, expect 29 of them to fail and one to make it, every company has to be a billion dollar company. That's why not, not everything is binary, obviously. But when you're trying to de-risk the portfolio and what you're selling to LPs, it's like, the, that's why investors are always like billion dollar company, billion dollar company, because that is how it works um, from day one. Um, of course, you're going to have like 10, 12X, 3X returns across the portfolio, but those don't necessarily equate to a 3X on the fund return. Um, I don't remember where I was going with that, but anyways, that's... 
Oh yeah, we're talking about what do we look for in founders? Um, oh gosh, other things. We look for um, one is the ability to articulate. I think being able to really break complex things down, something you've been working on that just deep into for 12 months and then pitch it to somebody that even your grandma could understand what it's doing. She's like, wow, this makes sense. I think it's really hard to find a team that has the technical expertise, the domain, as well as the ability to be articulative. Um, so those are also very important things when it comes to selling to future customers, bringing on future employees and raising capital from investors. Yeah, sounds great. Um, Jaden, do you have any other questions? Um, yeah, one one big question I had was, you know, going from the private sector into the public, how, how did you get the university involved? Because that can be a, a tough battle sometimes, depending on how the regulations of the university are set up. Yeah, so um, universities have endowment funds, and generally the portfolio managers, those endowment funds are going to have, you know, diversity across the portfolio with maybe 5% of that uh, fund into like venture or private equity. So they already invest most, most of them, generally speaking, invest in venture capital funds. Um, now those check sizes are, are mostly bigger. They don't invest in emerging managers or funds our size, but um, what's unique with us is that we are local and we're supporting student ventures and faculty-led ventures or alumni that are coming out of Columbia, Missouri. Um, so it really just kind of aligned the incentives and the long-term mission of us and the university, which is a big reason for them to support what we're doing as well as, I mean, they're not just supporting us, we're also supporting them. You know, as we grow this student accelerator there, it also helps you know, them be able to actually support the students that are building companies at the university and recruit students who have more entrepreneurial mindsets. Um, we have the ability to bring in people who have, you know, one thing that's really important is um, having people that basically have come out of Columbia to say like, this is possible. Like maybe you've had an idea and it's, seems scary to start or like, I can't do it, but it's 100% it's possible. And it's like, we've had those people who are part of scale that can show that to the students. So that's also really important to have like that mentorship and network effects. Um, those were some of the reasons for them to want to partner with us and want us want to partner with them. So really developing that like uh, university and, and public or private sector, getting that connection. Yeah. Yeah. And then, so kind of going off of that, and you kind of alluded to it for alumni and stuff like that, going back to the entrepreneur, is it like a location you're looking for, any kind of specific tech you're looking for? Um, and then what is the check size you're, you're looking to deploy there? Yeah, so we, we do North America. Um, obviously love founders in Missouri and the Midwest, but we support founders everywhere. Uh, we've got a pretty diverse portfolio when it comes to uh, geolocation. I think half are probably across the Midwest and then the rest are California, New York, Florida, Utah, Texas, kind of everywhere. Um, Technology-wise, we're agnostic as long as it's technology, so it could be software, hardware. 
Part of our portfolio is hardware. Um, some of that's B2B or B2C. Same with the software. It's probably 50-50 cut consumer and, and enterprise. Uh, check size, we do 50K to 150K. And I'd say probably sweet spots somewhere in the 100 to 25, 125K range. Okay, <laughs> we'll cut that out. It'll look sleek when we when we post it. I think we should leave it all in and also <laughs> say we had to clip the videos together. Yeah. So, <laughs> what your ideal portfolio company look like? Um, looks like a really strong founder that is probably gone through the customer discovery phase. Has maybe, you know strip together uh or put put together a uh low code or mvp product and gotten some beta users to test it and and learn from them and then has come to scale looked for funding to pour some fuel on the fire and not just from a capital perspective or like a monetary capital perspective but also social capital perspective um that said we will back anybody regardless of the stage we've done idea napkin idea stuff to um, things that are post revenue. Um, it also really just depends on, you know, what, what that founder is looking for. And uh, if what we're offering the product that we're offering, which is our support is something that they would like to have. And um, in terms of like industry, gosh, I, I mean, we're generalists, but obviously we love prop tech, construction tech, fintech, or hardware technology um, based upon our, our team's backgrounds. So. so I had a question, actually. So you're talking about like back the napkin idea and stuff like that. Um, one thing I've struggled with, and I know a lot of people on the evaluation side from founding the company or investing in the company that they find very difficult is how do you evaluate a company that's pre-revenue? Like um, you don't have any multiples, you do comps on pitch book for seed rounds and stuff. I just wanted to hear you go about it. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, you kind of just look at what the market is paying for companies at that given time. There's gonna be a range. Let's just say it's right now that, you know, early stage pre-seed is, somewhere in the 4 million to 7 million post money cap range. Now, excluding Y Combinator companies that are raising it at 20 to 25 million post money valuations, pre-revenue is stupid. Yeah. Um, but it also, you know, it those things aren't like, none of this is like valuation theory. It's all valued based upon what the market is willing to pay for it. If you have investors that are willing to pay for it, it's private companies. It's not, um, liquid is not trading on a stock market where it's being bought and sold and the price is fluctuating based upon um, retail and institutional investors um, thoughts on that value. Because even if you look at public companies, um, some of the like the tech companies might get a 10x revenue multiple, whereas a company that's been growing 8% a year has like a 4x revenue multiple. And it's really hard. Like the argument for the 10X would be like, oh, this is like high growth and there's like IP and all this stuff. And it's like, well, as you saw, that's all kind of inflated after what happened in this year um, and last year. So 
I think a lot of stuff in valuation is really uh, who can adjust the numbers to get to the valuation they want and then really make a strong argument. It's, it's like, it's like litigation. It's like you can um, bend the argument any way you want and when, if you can make a really good case um, early stage, obviously, yeah, there's no multiples. You don't do like a discounted cash flow model. Like that's, if, if people are doing that, they're probably not very sophisticated and they're like overkilling. Um, now within that range where you're looking at the market, say you go to Carta or I don't know, um, AngelList or any of these different places where you might be able to find market rates. It's a little bit lagging because you're going to look at like what was the rate last month, but it's really not, it's not terrible lag. Um, and you're going to take, you know, when you're going to raise from investors, generally like the first one, you're not going to say, Hey, raising a million dollars at a $5 million post money cap. It's like, Hey, this is how much money we need over the next 18 to 24 months based on this financial plan. This is what our cash burn is going to be. This is what we need to spend money on. And then you kind of together set the price of the company because you don't want to go into it and say, Hey, I'm raising one at 10. And then they're all, they're just automatically like, Oh, that's too high for us. And then you don't want to continue the conversation. So you kind of let it happen organically. You don't want to go straight with a number. Um, also when you're fundraising, you don't want to just go out and say like, stick your flag on the ground and say, I'm fundraising today. It's kind of something you build over time and you're consistently growing these relationships with investors to the point where it's like, before you even tell them you're fundraising, they almost want to invest in your company. Um, now that range that I was sp speaking about with the market definitely changes based upon um, the demand for that company, that specific sector industry, who the founders are, what their backgrounds are. I mean, a founder who's had a hundred million dollar exit as opposed to a first time founder is going to get a different value. That's inevitable. Like it's that's that's gonna happen. And so you're like I said, you're really underwriting people at this phase. So it's it it really is partially who who the person is and then how much IP you have. You know, if it's a software company, it's there's not really any IP. Um as opposed to if it's like a very like technical, like you know, maybe you're doing some kind of like satellite company, like there's it's going to be a different valuation because you're going to have some kind of intellectual property there that you have to bake in. Um, so it was like the most probably confusing answer possible, but it's because there's not like a straight. Yeah. I mean, I think it, it was great that you mentioned that and brought that up really quick because a lot of first time founders, I think the way definitely when you do like pitch competitions and stuff, um, they present their company and they say they need this much money for this. And I think the commonality for first, people really getting into this for the first time is that you pitch it and they either say yes or no on your evaluation, the check's written right there. And I think it's great that you bring up that there's like a meeting of the minds and stuff like that, where this is a relationship that's developed and then the deal is actually talked through over the course of maybe weeks, would you say, or what kind of uh, um, back and forth time frame would you say you have with your founders? Um, it really just depends. Um, it depends if you get introduced to somebody and they're like deep in a fundraise, somebody's already got a lead term sheet. If somebody's, if they're kind of looking for that first investor, like it, as a founder, what I would want to do would be 
you've gotten a little bit of traction and you're testing the product with some customers, like fundraising might be something you want to do like three months down the road, but you want to start like reaching out or getting more intros to investors and saying, and trying to get feedback on what you're doing. And then you can kind of like test the market and see like how receptive people are, you know, are they investing in these companies now? What's kind of typical dilution that you might expect in this? So you kind of want to lean on the investors because that's who set it, who's setting the market price. Um, you can also talk to other founders or, you know, portfolio companies of investors you might want to target and try to get a sense of like how it is to work with them, um, what the terms were when they raised funding. Like those are all ways um, to get an idea on that. But I'd say typically the process with like a pre-seed investor is going to be less, it's going to be like a month or less. Um, yeah. Depending on how interested they are in it, because there's not like the diligence process for a series A investment and a pre-seed investment are quite a bit different. Yeah. Like you have all this like financial diligence you have to do that you don't have to do in pre-seed because there are no financials to do diligence on. So. Yeah. And then I guess to start wrapping things up here, what what's next for you? I mean, you've, you've been a founder, you're starting this uh, investment, a VC firm and stuff like that, working with, with colleges to help the student body and stuff like that. So what's next? Yeah. Continue growing scale and backing more founders. I mean, we'll grow our portfolio to about 50 companies over the next two and a half years. Um, we'll have started about three companies. And um, so I definitely want to lean into the studio side and be really successful with starting the companies because I think that's going to be a big part of the long term of scale. Um, and yeah, getting prepped and ready to raise our next fund. So yeah, and then uh, I just wanted to ask, so if you want any founders or anything listening to this podcast, where would they go if they want to follow you? If you have anything you want to shout out here, what would that be? Yeah, you can email me at breadatscale-vc.com. Um, I'm on Twitter. At, I'm not really that active, although I am on Twitter. I think it's just at Brett Calhoun, maybe an extra in or something on there. And then, yeah, connect with me on LinkedIn, Brett Calhoun. Our website, scale-vc.com. So would you say you would want most people to go to your website and maybe there's a newsletter or something there? Yeah, there's a newsletter on our website. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, feel free to email me anytime. Awesome. Well, thanks for, uh, thanks for coming on the show, Brett. We'll call it a wraps there. <laughs>